All right, well, with that, let's stand together. We're in Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, and we're going to read verses 26 through 40. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40, and um, let's read the word of the Lord. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over to join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Lord, we are so thankful for this uh, account of this encounter between these two men. We're so thankful, Lord, that you would, that you would gift us, Lord, uh, the, the awareness of what you were doing in the life of Philip and even this Ethiopian. And Lord, now as we come to this text, as we come, we realize, Lord, that you want to do a work in us. And Lord, so what we know not, would you teach us? Lord, what we have not, would you give us? Lord, what we are not, would you make us, Lord? We, we pray these things, Lord, because we know that you are God who does fashion and shape us to be like your son, Jesus Christ. And allow me to be your messenger today, to faithfully proclaim your truth. And Lord, help us now to, to, to be attentive, to be eager, to be hungry. For your glory, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. When I was in my young teens living in England, my parents would host a home group and they would lead that home group. And I went to church with them periodically, but I wasn't a believer at that point in time. And so while home group was taking place downstairs, I was upstairs in my room with friends 
And the home group would take time and they would sing some songs together. Or we would hear them, you know, praying together. And upstairs, I'd be playing billiards with my friends. And we would just stop and we would laugh and we would mock. And we would make funny, silly gestures. And we would just basically do really bad things imitating the people downstairs. And yet, 40 years later, I'm hosting home group in my home. I'm leading home group in my home. And friends, how is it that God does that? See, God is in the business of drawing his people to himself. He's he's been in the business of drawing together a people who belong to him from across the globe. In fact, we find that promise to Abraham, don't we? In Genesis 17.4, he says this, You will be the father of a multitude of nations. And he announces it in a number of different places. I just highlight three of them. One, here in Isaiah chapter 56 and verses 4 and 5, because it relates to our text, specifically speaking to eunuchs, he says this. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And then Simeon's word in Luke chapter 2, in verse 29 and following, this is what we find. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And of course, we have Jesus who also is is announcing what is true in Luke chapter 24, verses 45 and following it says, and he opened their minds, talking about the disciples, to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in the name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So God promised it. God announced it. And then we find in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, God enables it through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So what we're seeing about God's mission to the Gentiles is that God is behind it, he promises it, he announces it, and he enables it. But now, in our passage, we move from the big picture of what God is doing in the book of Acts this, this mission to the Gentiles, to the actual individual outworking of that mission in, the, in particular lives. So we're moving from the forest to the trees, so to speak. And as the disciples have been driven out of Jerusalem because of all the persecution that has been taking, there, taking place there, as they go, they go proclaiming the gospel wherever they go. And the persecution is the means to the spread of the gospel. God is at work. The word of God keeps going out and God keeps bringing people in. It's a wonderful reality, isn't it? And it's a hammering theme in the book of Acts. And here in Acts chapter 8 and chapter 9, Luke brings us face to face with three individual trees, so to speak. And we saw one last week, Simon the magician, which we saw in Simon... <clears throat> 
was not a true convert. And there's some things that we need to expect then from these conversion stories. The first thing is, expect that as the gospel goes out, that there will be those who profess Christ but are not actually true converts. That's what we saw last week. Secondly, expect to meet people unexpectedly that are ripe for the harvest. That's what we're going to see today. And next week, as we look at the, the, the glorious salvation of Paul, expect God to radically save those whom we believe are beyond any hope. It's an incredible little section of the book of Acts, isn't it? And God wants us to see something in particular, not just with all three together, but now as we move into our text in particular, we see a model for actual effective missionary work. This is one of the ways that God works in the lives of people. And here is the proposition. It's a call for God's people to be ready to explain the gospel from the scriptures so that those whom God is drawing to himself can be joyfully saved. Now, friends, there's a sense in which this is Christianity 101. But there's also a sense in which we somehow deviate from this reality. We are called, as God's people, to be ready to explain the gospel. But explain it from where? From the scriptures, not outside the scriptures, from the scriptures. So that those whom God is drawing to himself can be joyfully saved. Which means that God is at work, but he also expects some things from us. Now, all of this falls together neatly into three sections. Verses 26 through 28. The gathering, this is not in your, te- your handout, but this is the breakdown where two men are introduced to us. Verses 29 through 35, the meeting where two men talk about a puzzling text, and we'll get to that. And then verses 36 through 40, the departure. So there's, a, there's this gathering, there's a, a meeting, and there's a departure. There's a sense in which there's a, there's a beginning section, there's an ending section, but the, the, the core, the heart, the meat of this text is really in that central section where they're meeting and wrestling over the text of God's words. Let's jump in now to see how we can flesh out that proposition here. First of all, be ready. Why? Because God is still in the business of seeking. This is for us now, and this was true back then. God is still seeking his own. Therefore, be ready for divine appointments. Now, this text unfolds abruptly by introducing us to two main characters in this divine encounter. Of course, each man has been living and functioning in a different context with different, uh, with different, or for different reasons. But this day, God is going to bring them together. So we want to first of all consider Philip. God has already been at work in Philip's life. And we're going to find here that he is obedient. Let's just read verse 26 and 27. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. Now, first of all, I just want to remind you of this man's character. We know nothing of Philip until he's introduced to us as one of those Hellenistic Jews 
that has been chosen by the people to take care of the widows. He is a deacon, if you want to put it that way. He's a man with a good reputation, and we're told they're full of the spirit and of wisdom. And we've also seen Philip as an evangelist. He went to the people in the city of Samaria, north of Jerusalem. And there he took the gospel, he proclaimed the gospel, and people are joyfully saved. There is joy in the city, we're told. But now we will see Philip in a different light, not doing mass evangelism, but he will be doing personal evangelism with a man from a different country, a different culture, a different class, whom he has never met. God has already been at work in Philip. And now he sends Philip to a road south of Jerusalem on the way to Gaza, which is right in the middle of the desert, we're told. And God says to Philip, rise up and go. And what does Philip do? He rose up and he went. It's his character. Notice his call. Philip is clearly attentive to the Lord's direction and will. And although he knows little of the specifics, he just says, go to the road. This is where I'm sending you. He knows that the Lord has declared that the unstoppable witness of the gospel will go from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He also knows that God is actively seeking those who are his through the faithful preaching of the gospel, the witness of Christ. He also knows that he is privileged to be one to bring those people, those seekers, to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, think about Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. I mean, what an honor. What a privilege. But he doesn't know exactly what's happening. But what he does know is that God is behind all of this. And Philip is is a growing and available follower of Christ who is sensitive to follow the instructions of the Lord in obedience. So we have Philip then, who is uh, in, in whom God is already at work. Secondly, we have God already being at work in the life of this Ethiopian eunuch. And we find here that he is seeking. Now we're introduced to this very unexpected character by the words in the ESV, there was. But if you have a NASB, you'll notice the word is And behold, in other words, this is kind of like a a textual way of saying, I have something surprising for you. I mean, this, this is not a normal situation. Philip, go to this road and bam, you're going to be meeting someone you've never met before. This is the idea here is to convey a surprise. You begin to see that how God is working, how he's orchestrating the details of the lives of two very different men. And notice here, first of all, uh, this Ethiopian's culture. He is an Ethiopian, which during that time was just south of of, um, Egypt, um, in the land of Cush, where the Nubians are from. And that indicates that this man was likely a dark-skinned man. We would consider him to be an African. And I remember when I was doing a Simeon Trust workshop as a participant leading a small group, one of the people that I had in the small group was an African-American pastor from Chicago. And this is something that he said as we were going through this passage. 
And I'm going to read this. This passage is so meaningful to me because it shows me how much God loves my people. After pouring out his spirit on the Jews in Jerusalem and the half-Jews in Samaria, the first Gentile God seeks after is an African brother from Ethiopia. So not only do I identify with Christ and his gospel, but I also identify with this African eunuch and his conversion. Clearly, Christianity is not a white man's religion because the gospel hasn't even reached Europe yet. Now, friends, that that was powerful when he said that because there are people going around that saying that Christianity is a white man's religion. And what he's seeing here is, look, my people, this is is how the gospel went to my people. This This is the entry road. It's a wonderful passage. For, for him in his context, but it's a wonderful passage for us to see how God is working in the lives of people. So we've seen his culture. He's an Ethiopian. Notice now his class. He's a eunuch and a court official. Now, eunuchs were castrated men who often served as keepers of harems. A harem was basically where the wives and concubines of a king or a prince lived. And if you had A eunuch overseeing that, you could trust him to do his work. But eunuchs are also served in many times in the upper levels of society as court officials. And that's what we find here. This particular Ethiopian eunuch was uh, was important and powerful in his position. He was in charge of the queen's treasure. Now, growing up in England, we would identify that person in that country as the chancellor of the exchequer, which is Quite a mouthful, isn't it? In our country, that would be the, the, the secretary of the treasury. Right? This is the very important role, a very, a very important function that this Ethiopian eunuch had. And the point here is that this man was a part of Ethiopia's powerful elite government class. Now, I don't know about you, but when you meet people that are you know, part of government, they kind of, there's a sense in which they, they feel they're up in a different world, right? And they are, for the most part. We're not rubbing shoulders with those kind of people, typically. And likely the evidence of this is the fact that he is journeying down the road from, from Jerusalem to Gaza in a chariot. I mean, not too many people had chariots. And, and you, you just add to that, he has a driver for the chariot, right? That he tells to stop. And while he's in the chariot on this journey, what is he able to do? He's able to read the book of Isaiah, which is in a scroll function. This is not your average person, okay? I mean, so this is clearly someone who is in a different class altogether. Then notice also what I'm calling his creed. He was a proselyte Jew. Now, just just kind of remind ourselves here, there were the Hebrew Jews ethnic Jews who lived in Jerusalem. There were the Hellenistic Jews who were Jews living outside of Jerusalem in various parts of the Mediterranean. And then there were proselyte Jews who were not Jews by ethnicity, but had embraced Judaism. And this is what we find here. Here we have a proselyte Jew. Do you see how, how Luke is organizing his material here? Even to show the steady spread of the gospel within those who are Judaistic, followers of Judaism. You have the Jews proper, the Hellenistic Jews, 
and the proselyte Jews. There's a spread going on here, even in this story. And so likely this eunuch had come to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage to worship. And this would have been a long journey, friends, from where he was from. And they say probably would have taken between four and five months to get there. So this was likely a bucket list pilgrimage that one would do only once in a lifetime. So this was an important deal. And friends, God is bringing together two very different men. They both have, uh, or, or they, they live in different contexts. They experience different culture. They, they rub shoulders with a different class. They, they hold to a different creed. Yet God brings them together for a few short hours. It's a divine appointment designed and orchestrated by God. Luke wants us to see that. He wants to see that the movement that's taking place in both of these lives and how God is bringing them together. And for Philip, it requires a spiritual sensitivity, alertness, and obedience. And friends, I know one of the topics that that we have difficulty in talking about is the topic of evangelism because we all feel like we are abysmal at it. That and prayer, right? I mean, those are the two things we just really, really struggle. And it's like, oh, no, he's talking about evangelism. Oh, no. But I want us to learn some things here. When it comes to being an evangelist, is this your mindset? Being spiritually sensitive, alert, obedient. Are you mission-minded? Are you seeing yourself as someone whom God is at work in and he is orchestrating his world to accomplish his purposes? Are you ready and anticipating God-orchestrated encounters with others? And I think that, that one of the hurdles that we, that we have, and probably the first hurdle that we need to overcome, is to be ready for divine appointments. There's probably a part of us that says, I'm just not too sure if I want to have one because I don't know what I will do with it. And so we struggle with so many I can'ts, don't we? I can't because I'm too busy. I can't because I'm too young. I can't because I'm too immature. I can't because my, my, my workplace won't allow me to. I can't because I'm too afraid. I can't because I'm incompetent. I can't because it wouldn't be right in this particular moment. I can't, I can't, I can't. This is all of us, friends. We struggle with this. And maybe you're experiencing all of those things. But hear this, believe it or not, you are exactly the kind of follower of Christ God chooses to work through. Yes, he works through the pastor, the theologians, the mature Christians, whoever those people might be. But he loves to work through the steadily growing, somewhat ordinary and insignificant follower of Christ. And I think we all fit into that category. God is not saying, I want everyone to be Philip. But he is saying, I want everyone who is a follower of mine to be ready. Because I'm still in the business of seeking. So secondly, we want to say, not only do we need to be ready because God is is still seeking, we want to be clear because God is still speaking. God is still revealing himself in his word. Therefore, we must Seek to be careful to explain the scriptures clearly. In the next few verses here, we're going to get to the heart of the matter. 
But I want you to notice, first of all, that there's a context. We need to talk a little bit about this context that, that Luke has laid out for us. There's really two activities fr- that frame this divine appointment and what the Ethiopian has been doing and what he's been reading. Let's just, first of all, focus in on what the Ethiopian has been doing. For a proselyte Jew to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in order to worship at the temple, it must have been a joyful yet disappointing experience. Now, why would I say that? Well, as some of you know, um, I'm now a grandfather, and a couple weeks ago, my wife and I uh, wanted to go down and see my new grandchild. His name is Raiden, and so we drove... Uh, got up, drove down I-5, got stuck in the one-lane traffic that day, and it was a long journey to get down to Oceanside, California, and we ended up, the plan was to, to spend the night in the hotel and the next morning to go over and see my, my son and my daughter-in-law and, of course, Raiden. And Elia wakes up, my wife wakes up the next morning, and she says, I didn't have a good night. I have had chills, and I'm feeling terrible right now, and I think I have a fever. And of course, I mean, she, there's nothing that she could do about it. She's not at fault for it. It's just the situation. But we realize if that's the case, then guess what we can't do? And so that day, she rested. I went out, got food, and brought it back. And then we went to bed that night and woke up the next morning. It's like, you know what? I don't know if I'm going to get sick. We need to get home. So we made our journey over to my, my son's house. And we dropped off presents. And we were able to see little Raiden through a window. Got about this close to him through a window. He was cute. He was adorable. He was squeezable. But we couldn't touch him. I mean, it was wonderful. It was worth it. But it was disappointing. Now, with that in mind, I want you to think about what's happening here with this eunuch. You see, as a eunuch... He was not allowed into the temple. He was considered impure. As a foreigner, he was not allowed into the inner courts. He could not join in with the other ethnic Jews. A Gentile, although he confessed and worshipped the God of Israel, he was limited to worship outside in the court of the Gentiles. And outside the temple was a sign on the wall in both Latin and Greek. And here's what it said. No man of another race is to enter within the fence and enclosure. Whoever is caught will only have themselves to thank for the death that follows. See, for the Ethiopian, it was a huge sign that said, keep out, keep out. I mean, it traveled all this way on this pilgrimage to go to the temple. And the sign says, keep out, keep out. Joy, yet disappointment. That's what he was doing. Secondly, I want you to notice what the Ethiopian has been reading. Just like my African-American friend was drawn to this passage in Acts, So, to be sure, as the Ethiopian is reading through the book of Isaiah, he would be drawn to what is being said in Isaiah's prophecy that we read earlier, chapter 56, verses 4 and 5. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there. I want you to see what it says. Isaiah 56, verses 4 and 5. 
For thus says the Lord. Now just, just hear how powerful this is. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. Do you think when he's reading through this that he's captivated by what he's reading? This is exactly what he's doing. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. I'll let you figure out the interpretation and the application of all that. Friends, do you think that Isaiah has gotten this man's attention? Yes. Do you think that he sees in these words that somehow he as a proselyte Jew will be elevated even to a status better than being an actual son or daughter? That's what it says. Do you see how he would be drawn in by having an everlasting name that shall not be cut off? This is the context, friends, of what he's reading ultimately in Isaiah 53. You know what it's like. You see something in Scripture that really identifies you're a woman, you see a woman. You see a man, you're drawn in, right? Here he is, a eunuch. It's not too often in the Bible you have that. I'm not talking about Old Testament here. There it is. And so when Philip shows up, the Ethiopian is reading Isaiah, and he has this incredible passage before him, and it's Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. We'll read it in this text, however. Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, he opens not his mouth in his humiliation. Justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Alec Motier, um, British theologian, rightly says, The towering theological genius of Isaiah is nowhere more apparent than in this chapter. And he goes on to say, as the Egyptian went up to the temple, he would have seen numerous sacrifices. The purpose of the sacrificial animal was symbolically to carry God's judgment in my place such that I could now have access to an open relationship with God without fear of his anger and his just judgment. But the truth of the matter is that no animal could do anything more than picture substitution. It wasn't like there was something actually happening, actually transacting. The animal would go compliantly to his death. But with the Ethiopian, or what the Ethiopian is reading, is that a day was coming when a servant of God would come as God and go willingly to his death as a sacrificial lamb in order to carry God's judgment for your sin and for mine. So friends, this is the context. He's been doing something, and he's been reading something. This is all before Philip even gets there. And now there's a question. Having been to the temple numerous times, and now the Ethiopian is reading through the book of Isaiah, this one question that is nagging him, there's one question that his conscience just can't let go of, and it's this, about whom does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Now, because we're so familiar with the Christian gospel we may not understand why the Ethiopian is so puzzled by what he's reading. But in Judaism, the sacrifice 
of animals was the norm. You could not have peace with God without an animal sacrifice. You could not have forgiveness with God without the blood of an animal serving as your substitute, where the wrath of God would fall upon the animal rather than on you. So clearly for the Ethiopian and every other practicing Jew, it has been animals, lambs, rams, goats, oxen. They've all been offered as sacrifices in order that man can be right with God. But this passage is not talking about an animal. It's talking about a man. A man who would be led to the slaughter. A man who would not open his mouth at the injustice that's going on. A man who would die just like a lamb. So the question isn't about what does the prophet say, but about whom does the prophet say. And of course, we know the answer. The book of Hebrews tells us, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. And then just a few verses later, we're told that it is Jesus who would die as the sacrifice once for all. But the Ethiopian doesn't know that. He doesn't understand that. He needs someone to help him. So there's a context and there's a question in his mind, but now there's a guide that God provides. Now, Philip had initially heard from an angel And we're not told what the angel looks like. We're not told how the Philip knows that it's an angel sent from God. But he knows it's clear to Philip that this is an angel from God. And the angel sent him to a desolate road between Jerusalem and Gaza. It's about a hundred mile journey from Jerusalem to Gaza. So somewhere on that road. Imagine, I try to give our own little scale. It would be like traveling from here to Monterey. So somewhere on that that stretch, on a dusty road, he's, he's encountering this particular Ethiopian. And then Philip hears from the Spirit. And the Spirit tells Philip to go over and join the chariot. Now the point here is that God is sovereignly working out his providence in bringing both Philip and the Ethiopian court official together. It's all part of God's providential plan. And Philip obeys. And I want you to notice verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. There's going to be three things we're going to see here as we consider this this subject of Philip being the guide. There's a question, and the question, of course, is do you understand what you're reading? There's also a response. How can I, unless someone guides me? Now, just imagine you are looking for work. You're looking for work in a particular job, and there's a job that comes available, and it's in the city. And, you know, you see God's hand in it, and so God has been orchestrating it, and you're like, hey, this is great, and you finally get that job. But in getting that job, you realize, I'm really not going to be able to take my car over to the city. It's going to be a rush hour. It's just going to be a pain. So I'm going to ride BART. I think this is what the Lord would have me do. I'm going to ride BART. You know, it'd be the best scenario. You never know who you're going to meet, but I'm going to get on BART. And so that's your plan. This is all part of God's design. You've been praying about this job. You've been trusting God for it. And you just believe this is how you're going to get back and forth. It's going to be best for you. And so you're on BART. And you see someone reading the Bible. 
and you ask them, what are you reading? And a conversation begins. You see, this is, this is not some kind of a, let's all get together and orchestrate what's going to happen. This is just the way God works in our lives. When we're trusting him, when we're following his will, he's placing us in different contexts. You might be standing in line at the grocery. You might be standing in line for a COVID test, right? Again and again, right? Uh, there, there are all sorts of just natural things that happen, and God places you in context, and you rub shoulders with people that you've never met before. How do you view that? How do you see that? This is all part of God's orchestration. I remember when a number of years ago, going to Bolivia to, to teach a Simeon Trust workshop, and I was with Joel Umansor, who's our pastor friend um, up in the Panola area. And uh, we were we had gotten through security, and we thought, okay, let's get something to eat. So we sat down at a restaurant. It was pretty busy that night, and a lot of the tables were full. And as we're eating, there was a young man, probably about 30 or so, that kind of looked at us and said, hey, do you mind if I sit here at the table with you? We had, we had room. We're like, yeah, come on, sit with us. And, and Hoel and I were just in the thick of talking about our talks, you know, what we're going to be teaching and some of the subject matter. It was all about the gospel and about Christ. We're just speaking openly, and the guy's like, eating a sandwich, and he's like, you can tell he's listening to what we're, what we're saying, and finally he says, are you guys pastors? And we're like, yeah. He's like, oh, man. He says, I have questions. And we're like, okay, that's good. And, and he was full of questions, but he made all sorts of, I think that Jesus and Christianity means X, Y, and Z kind of statements, right? Which were not necessarily healthy, good statements. To which, uh, you know, then he asked, you know, after having said that, what do you guys think about what I'm saying? And we both kind of took turns, and we basically said the same thing. Friend, I hear what you're saying and, and why you might believe those things, but this is what the Scriptures actually say. And so here's the problem, friends. And this is why even, even in, our, in our proposition is the importance of, of our ability to explain the gospel from the Scriptures. Because people are all over the park in their ideas of who God is and what the gospel is. And as this man left, after about 45 minutes of interacting with us, getting to his plane, of course, Joel and I looked at each other, and we just like, God obviously had to be in this. And we're just sitting here having our meal, and this guy comes and sits, and here's this conversation. And who knows whether that conversation bore fruit in this man's uh, conversion. But we sought to be faithful, faithful with the opportunity that God had given us at that particular point in time. Now, friends, this, this kind of encounter isn't the only way evangelism takes place, but it's one of the ways God orchestrates to spread his gospel. And so we have these three things then, a question, a response, and the third, a proclamation. And I, I want you to notice here that Philip responds to the Ethiopian's appeal for a guide. And notice what it says in verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with, with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So we have him proclaiming the word of God, the scriptures, and then we have him proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even in our mission statement, you notice at the end, we're talking about knowing, uh, uh, applying and proclaiming the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that is throughout the word of God. Right? So we want to make sure those two things are there. Now, we're not told exactly where Philip took the Ethiopian in the scriptures, but I'm sure it would have been a powerful study 
of Christ in the Old Testament. And I would just kind of draw your attention to, to, to Luke chapter 24 to read it yourself sometime. But here's one of the core things that Jesus does with the two disciples that were on the road to Emmaus. Luke 24, verse 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That Christ is there. So I just thought to myself, we're not told what he did exactly, but where might Philip have gone in the scriptures? Well, for, first of all, we're told he began there in Isaiah 53, right? He, he begins by explaining the text of Isaiah 53, where an innocent sufferer is brought to the place of slaughter and unjustly executed. And the greater context then of that chapter would point to the fact that this person is the servant of the Lord, Israel's Messiah. But friends, the Jews have always rejected that the servant of the Lord could suffer. He was of royal lineage and would one day come as Messiah to overthrow kings and rulers and to establish the kingdom in Israel. That's what they thought. The servant of the Lord wouldn't come to suffer. He wouldn't come to die. That just wasn't in their thinking. But as Philip explains, I'm sure the Ethiopian is taking it all in. See, Isaiah 53 says, He bears our griefs and sorrows. He is stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That sounds a lot like suffering to me. He is pierced for our transgressions. He is crushed for our iniquities. He bears the chastisement that brings man peace. He is wounded so that we can be healed. Sure sounds like suffering. And then Philip might have gone to Genesis 4, where Abel brought a lamb of the firstborn of his flock as the sacrifice to offer to God, and God was pleased with that sacrifice. Or Genesis 22, where Isaac brings Jacob on the altar and God provides a ram. Or Exodus 12, where the Hebrews kill a Passover lamb and in doing so put the the blood on the doorpost, and when the angel of the Lord comes, they're they're saved, they're protected. Or the book of Leviticus, where God lays out the details of all different kinds of sacrifices. Or maybe you took the Ethiopian to the Messianic Psalms. And just, I mean, a couple to think through here would be Psalm 2, Kiss the Sun, or Psalm 16, or Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. But surely he would have mentioned the words of John the Baptist, Israel's last prophet, who when he sees Jesus declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And likely because he was drawing the Ethiopian's attention to Jesus, he would would speak of what Jesus said. We have it recorded in Mark's gospel. He wouldn't have had that at that point in time. But it says, for even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. These are Jesus' words. And then having shown Christ in the Old Testament, Philip draws out the gospel of the kingdom of God that Jesus died on the cross, paying for our sins. He was buried, giving evidence that his death was real. He rose from the tomb on the third day, just as he had said, he is now exalted to heaven seated at the Father's right hand. My friends, this is the pattern of gospel witness, isn't it? 
to believe that God is already working in someone's life, to believe that God is at work by his sovereignty, already orchestrating someone's life for a divine encounter, to believe that what is needed most is to show Jesus in the scriptures. To show that Jesus is central to the message of the Bible. To show that the gospel is the only way that man can be reconciled to God. Now if we turn to Acts chapter 17, we're going to see that this is the pattern of Paul's preaching. Acts chapter 17 verses 2 and 3, this is what we read. And Paul went in. He's in a Gentile territory now, right? So he, he went in, and as was his custom, and, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. You see, this is the pattern, friends, to show from the Old Testament scriptures that it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, my question to you is, can you explain the gospel from the Old Testament scriptures? What's interesting is that when I do a Simeon Trust workshop, I ask the same thing of pastors. Can you explain the gospel from the Old Testament? And the problem is we cut our teeth on the New Testament. We have our understanding of the gospel from the New Testament. Oftentimes we are neglectful of the gospel in the Old Testament. Now, the privilege is now today, we don't have to just rely on the Old Testament. We have the explanation of the New Testament to give clarity to what we have in the Old Testament. But the question is, can you explain the gospel? From the scriptures. What are some ways I can be effective to clear or to be clear with the scriptures? I have just five things here that I want to briefly mention. First of all, listen. When the word of God is being preached or taught, pay attention. Be a good expositional listener. And what that means is I, throughout the week, whoever's teaching or preaching throughout the week is prepared preparing to preach, they're preaching. They're not the only person who has to work during that time. It's your responsibility to be a good expositional listener. Listen. Second, learn. Grow in your understanding of the Word of God. How is it all tied together? How, how does it proclaim the good news of Christ? How does it all point to Jesus? Learn and grow in your understanding and your ability to be able to navigate God's word. Third, love. Develop a passion for God's work in evangelism. In other words, love the gospel and love the work of the gospel getting to people's lives. You and I get to be a part of the most radical change that can take place in a person's life. Just think about it in those terms. As God orchestrates your world according to his will, he will be faithful to give you opportunities to testify, often when you least expect it. Number four, look. Have your spiritual eyes open to discern how God is at work through the interactions you're having with others. And the last one is kind of more of a backdrop statement. Live 
Make sure that your, your life is oriented to God and his work in you as well through you. In other words, be the kind of person who's praying for these things to take place. Be the kind of person who's, who's modeling in their life what it means to be a follower of Christ. Now, this isn't the, the whole solution, friends, but this is something we can all be doing. And you don't have to be, I want to say, a, a, a theological expert to be able to have a conversation with someone about Christ and the gospel from the scriptures. So be ready, because God is still seeking. Be clear, because God is still speaking. Third, be expectant, because God is still saving. And I just, I just wonder whether in our particular context and culture, whether we've kind of lost our hope in the powerful, converting uh, nature of the gospel. We're just not sure whether it does what it's supposed to do anymore. But friends, God is still in the business of changing lives. Therefore, be expectant of a joyful and obedient response. I want you to notice, first of all, obedient faith. True conversion bears fruit in obedience to the will of the Lord through his word. The new convert has a new master, and his name is Jesus Christ. Just notice what we're told here in verse 36 and following. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now you have to ask yourself the question, how did he even know about baptism? Well, likely Philip, as he's walking him through the gospel and taking him now to the commands that Jesus gave as he left the apostles and the disciples with their mission, one of the things was, you know, embrace Christ as Lord and Savior and be baptized and be baptized. This is the pattern. And so what we see here is the Ethiopian coming to some water and saying, okay, let's do it. What's stopping us? Well, you know, these are just some new clothes that I have here, and I just don't want to get them wet or anything like that, right? I mean, I remember, you probably heard me tell the story before, but, you know, I had a friend who got a new golf umbrella for Christmas. This is years ago when I was in high school. And we're out. This is in England. Always rains, right? So you want a golf umbrella. And started to pour down with rain. And so I said, well, why don't you pull out your umbrella? And he said, oh, no, I don't want to get it wet. Now, these are, these are, I mean, sometimes we come up with the silliest reasons why we're not going to do something. No, he, what does he do? He takes them down in the water. They go into the water. They're down there. He gets baptized. He comes up out of the water. Friends, understand what we have here is a new convert who is eager to be obedient to the instructions of God's word. Friends, baptism isn't an option for the truly converted. It's It should be something that we long to do. Why? Because we want to be obedient. We want to clearly identify with Jesus, our new master. And because we want to continue our obedience to be joined to God's local body of believers, the church. So true faith is marked by obedient faith. Secondly, true faith is marked by a joyful faith. Just notice what happens here in verse uh, 39. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Now, friends, this is the fruit of the gospel. And let's just remember that joy 
is not an emotion so much as it is a, an attitude of the heart that is rooted in theological truth. You can have rough days, but still have joy, right? But what we have here is a celebration, and yet at the same time, he still had a long journey ahead of him. He was going to have some rough days. He was going to get uncomfortable, but he now is a follower of Christ. And friends, there is joy in that. Obedient faith, joyful faith. And now, just looking at Philip in particular, we have a missional faith. I want you to notice Philip's faith for Christ's mission. The Holy Spirit carried Philip away, and he found himself at Azotus. I don't know about you. That would be an interesting experience. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit takes me, and where am I now? I don't know. I'm in Los Gatos. Okay, great. What am I supposed to do here now? What does Philip do? He ends up in Astos. What what happens there? By the way, this is the old uh, capital city of the Philistines, Ashdod. It's about five to ten miles from that road that they were probably on. But notice what this passage tells us. But Philip found himself at Astos, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns, and he came to Caesarea. Philip didn't miss a beat. He had been up in Samaria. He had been brought down now south of Jerusalem on this road. And now he's going to go to this other region. Notice here, there's no vacation. He's not doing any, any book signings or anything like that. He's not doing any interviews with any social media. No, he's right back to what he's been called to do as an evangelist. And what appears here, because this is a repeated activity, he's, he preached, that is in a, in a Greek tense, which means this is repeated over and over and over again in a variety of towns and villages as he's going. Likely here, an itinerant preaching kind of ministry until he ends up in Caesarea, which is about, about 100 miles north of Azotus. And by the way, the, the coast area of Israel at that time was not something you could walk up along. It was a lot of marshland, so he had to go inland to walk. And so he had to go through all these different towns and villages on his way up to Caesarea. So here, here he was in the north. God brings him down now to the southwest. And now he's going to have this ministry from the southwest, all kind of west of Jerusalem, all the way up to Caesarea. In Acts chapter 21, verse 8, 20 years later, Luke is with Paul and they are going into Caesarea and into, um, well, here's what it says. This is what Luke is recording as he, while he's with Paul on this journey. On the next day, we, me and Paul, uh, departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. In other words, Caesarea ended up being his ultimate place of residence. And we don't know exactly. Likely he was the leader of the church there, but he had this ministry all up and down the, the coastal region of Israel. And friends, this is just an amazing thing. Philip doesn't stop his missional faith. He keeps on going, serving the Lord. But we get this one beautiful vignette. Isn't it great? Now, as we just kind of draw things to a close here, I want us to, to remind ourselves of the proposition that I gave you. Look on your hand out there. It's a call for God's people to be ready to explain the gospel from the scripture so that those whom God is drawing to himself can be fully saved. There's three words that I want to just kind of end up with here 
to kind of get us to continue to think about this text in a broad sense, but also in a personal sense. First of all, the word is diversity. Diversity. Christianity is not a white man's religion. It's made up of people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. It reaches to both men and women, the rich and the poor, the Jew and the Gentile, the slave and the free, the young and the old, the Giants fans, the A's fans. It reaches to everyone. We must recognize here, we must embrace the fact that Christianity is uh, what reaches a diverse culture. It's made up of farmers and teachers and nurses and mechanics and garbage collectors and scientists and police officers and professional athletes and financial advisors and IT workers and taxi drivers, cooks, accountants, construction workers, and even lawyers. It's diverse. And friends, the net of the gospel has spread and continues to spread among all the people from all different places Different cultures, different classes, and different creeds. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All need to listen to the gospel and to believe in Christ. Secondly, there's diversity, but there's also unity. Christianity unites people from diverse backgrounds under the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now what unites us is not our uniformity so that we're all looking the same, or our conformity, that means forcing people to act and behave a certain way. This is like why, you know, you go to some church in the middle of Africa and they're all wearing choir robes. Why? Where did they get that from? They got that from us, as if this is the way it's supposed to be done. But there are churches all over the globe in all sorts of different countries, in all sorts of different places. And what unites them is Christ and his gospel. That's why you can visit the true church in France or Ukraine or Argentina or Korea or in Fiji, and it will maintain its unique culture, but it will be centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. Diversity, unity. Third, Simplicity. The methodology and the message we see repeated in the scripture is this. Explaining the gospel from the scriptures. I mean, over and over again. Isn't that what it is? Unfortunately, the church is too easily tempted to adapt her message or methods in light of the perceived needs or concerns of the world around her. And some have even thought to encourage a more mystical form of evangelism, whereby we simply are called to live our lives in a loving way by showing and doing acts of love. So you want to reach your neighbor? Cut your neighbor's grass. Cook them a meal. Wash their car. These are all good things but they're not gospel things. Can you imagine if Philip took that advice? He's there on the road. He sees the Ethiopian. He sees the chariot. And he says, whoa, slow down, slow down. Hey, I want to wash your chariot. Let you know how much I love you. And he washes the chariot and the unit goes on. And there's been no gospel interaction. Those things are good. 
but they are not the gospel. They're platforms, but see, evangelism is a vocal ministry. It's something we speak. It's something we proclaim. It's something we explain. It's something we verbalize. Friends, God's method and message haven't changed. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And the pattern that we see in Acts is clear. Explain the gospel from the scriptures. Now, Lord, we want to be a faithful people. This is an area, Lord, we know that we struggle in, especially now as we're in the midst of what continues to be called a pandemic and so much we've isolated ourselves at home and we're quickly getting in and out of our cars and going into some place and coming out and really not talking to anyone except for just a quick hello or something to get us through. And we wonder, Lord, how can we even have these kind of divine encounters? And yet, Lord, we know that you are still orchestrating your plan and you are at work. And so, Lord, even in the small ways, maybe not as grand, as miraculous, as dynamic as we have read in this passage, Lord, you are still at work in our lives and in the lives of others that you're drawing to yourself. Lord, you're bringing people like us and them together so that we can have the privilege of explaining the gospel from the scriptures as the means by which they will receive the joy of true and lasting conversion. Lord, help us to see our part that you have us to play in that, to trust you, Lord, to give us the words, to give us the insight, and to give us the wisdom. And Lord, help us to be diligent students of your word, Lord, so that we can, we can build a reservoir, growing reservoir of understanding so that we can be more effective. But Lord, ultimately, you are the one who is at work. And that fertile ground that you have been, that you have been stirring up, getting ready, Lord, for the gospel germination, Lord, that's all your work, Lord. Help us to be faithful as we have opportunity that you, you give us, Lord, to proclaim and to teach your gospel from the scriptures with your help. We ask in your precious name. Amen.